All right, guys, good morning. How's everybody doing? I want to welcome all you guys. Welcome, uh, of course, our Thursday night guys in Burleson, our Friday morning guys in uh, Granbury, our Sunday night guys in Fort Worth, and we have a new group meeting in Brock, and they're starting this week. So uh, not sure how many there are, but that group has started. So we've got four different groups meeting throughout the week, watching online. So we're excited about that. But we're going to jump into it tonight, today, this morning, and uh, we're going to buckle your seatbelts because we're going to cover a lot of territory. We're, we're co- going up to 36,000 feet, and we're going to start moving quicker than we have been because we've got a lot, of, a lot of territory to cover. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll jump into it this morning. Lord, we're grateful for uh, the chance to come together to enjoy a meal together, enjoy fellowship, but also to study your word. And I pray that you would help me to be clear, concise, and that, Father, this would be a, a lesson that resonates with us, that we walk away encouraged and challenged by what we hear. And, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's alive and active and sharp, and it, it guides, it directs, it convicts, and it, it encourages. And so, Lord, would you help it to do that today? And we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So we're, we're going to cover a lot of ground, and, and the, the general theme for this, this morning is a royal reboot. And the re- reason I called it that is that God's going to basically start over. Uh, he's going to begin again, so to speak. So we, we've looked at uh, the beginning, in the beginning God created, and now we're going to see kind of a, a, a restart, a reboot, a, 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 a mulligan, so to speak. He's going to start all over again, and we're going to see why. What's going on? So we saw last week in chapter 3 what Adam and Eve did. Uh, it's, it's often referred to as the fall. I kind of moved away from that just, just because I feel like it's, it's a little um, misleading. Uh, I don't think they really fell as much as they made a conscious decision to disobey God and move away from God. But as a result of that, they were banished from Eden, the garden, this, this incredible place that God made for them where they had perfect fellowship with him. They're now cast out. Um, there's a cherubim, an angel that is stationed at the entrance, the eastern entrance to Eden, and along with a flaming sword. I used to think that the angel held the sword, but they're actually two separate things. There's the cherubim, and then there's a flaming sword that moves back and forth on its own the whole purpose of which is to keep them from going back into the garden where they can access the tree of life. Because God said, if they eat of the tree of life, which gives eternal life, they'll live forever in that fallen state, in that sinful state. And so they're banned. That's how we ended it last week. But we also said that God has not abandoned them. He's not, he didn't kill them. He could have, he could have said, you don't want to obey me. You want to be like God? Well, guess what? You're not and so you're done, you're toast. He didn't do that. And last week, we really wanted to concentrate on the idea that God is gracious. And we're going to see that again as we even move forward through these next chapters. Uh, and the one thing I want us to continue to do is to think through this, these chapters, through the lens, through the eyes of the Israelites. What did they see? What did they hear? What were the messages and lessons that they learned from these stories? And we're going to cover a lot of stories this morning. We have to understand that the the mandate that God gave Adam and Eve is still in place. It hasn't changed. He still wants them and expects them to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, do everything he had told them to do, 
even though they've rebelled against him. That's part of God's grace. He could have said, okay, you don't want to do what I want you to do, then I'll find somebody else to do the job. No, he still expected them to complete that task. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So when we go into chapter 4, and we're going we're gonna, to, again, cover a lot of chapters. We're going to go from chapter 4 all the way to the beginning of chapter 11 this morning. And the reason we're covering so much territory is that if you think about the book of Genesis, it's 50 chapters long. 11 chapters cover what's called primordial history, the beginning. Chapter 1 and 2 is the creation of the world, and then we're going to go all the way to the flood and the Tower of Babel in chapter 11. That's, that's a big chunk of time. We don't know exactly how much time it covers, but that's a lot of time, and Moses only takes 11 chapters to cover it. Well, what are the remaining 40 chapters, 39 chapters? It's what's called patriarchal history. It's the history of the Israelites. And that's where we really want to spend most of our time. So we're going to kind of fast forward through this section. And as I've told you before, if you want to dig deeper, it's the reason I gave you that little flash drive with devotionary on it. You can read in greater detail about all the different things going on, but we're going to kind of go up higher and look down as we fly over it. So that's where we're going. But chapter 4 opens up with this, that Adam knew Eve, his wife, yada, he knew, which is interesting. That word yada is the same word for they knew they were naked and they covered themselves. It's It's an awareness, a perception, but it's also a term for sexual intercourse, obviously, because of what happens in these verses, right? He knew his wife, She conceived, she bore Cain, and she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And then again, she bore his brother Abel. So they're basically doing what God said, right? They're multiplying. They've had two kids, two sons. We don't know how close they were born together, but in a relatively short period of time, they begin to do what God told them to do. And if you read this, it sounds like she's giving God the credit. I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. There's a lot of debate exactly what that phrase means because the words in it in the Hebrew have a lot of different variations and meanings. The the Net Bible translates it this way, which I think is the proper way based on the context. I have created a man just as the Lord did. Now, you can see the difference between those two translations, right? One sounds like she's saying, God helped me do this. The other one's saying, I did what God did. God created a man, my husband and I created a man. Now, what was the temptation that the serpent threw at her? Eat of this fruit, and you will be as God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God, not emulate God, not reflect God, not image God, but you will be as God. And so I think what's going on here is that Eve is kind of bragging about what she's done. If you think about it, if, if any woman has carried a baby for nine months and then goes through the pain of delivery, she's going to take some credit for that. You know, look, look what I've done. Look what I went through. Look what I've produced here. And that's really, I think, what's going on here, that I have created a man just like God did. She seems to be comparing herself to God, and you're already beginning to see that mankind is, is taking a track away from God. Not only have they been cast out of the garden... And they're now moving east, away from the garden and away from God. So physically and spiritually, there's a distancing going on. But she's also beginning to 
kind of take credit for things she shouldn't be taking credit for. I've made a man, she says, ex nihilo, out of nothing. Look what I've done. Uh, and so there's a little bit of pride going on, and it's based on her almost godlike capacity that I can, I can give life. I can bring life. I've just done it two times. I, I've delivered Cain. I've delivered Abel. And so you see this kind of hubris, this pride, this arrogance that's beginning to creep up. And we see it today, right? That mankind is basically prideful, arrogant. We don't need God. We're as God. We can do whatever we want. And especially in a country like ours that is so powerful and so rich and prosperous, and we've done many things in a very short period of time, we can get so bold and arrogant that we almost kind of shake our fist in the face of God and say, we don't need you. And that's what we're going to see as we move through these chapters, this, this increasing arrogance and, again, autonomy, self-rule, self-determination. I don't need God. I can do whatever I want to do. What's interesting is this, this idea that she conceived. She uh, got pregnant, basically. And of course, she needed the help of her husband to do that. But it's also a picture of God's grace, what we talked about last week, that God gave her the grace to conceive and to bear those children. She couldn't have done it without God's help. And if you've ever had children, which I know most of you in the room have had, when that happens, when your wife gives birth, it, it, I know it blew me away the first time. It blew me away every time. But I remember the first time, it, I literally could not believe what I just witnessed, that out of my wife came that child and that the miracle of birth is just incredible to me. Um, it, it, Mitchell and his wife Haley just went through that, that it's, it's amazing what God did. And so it's a picture of God's grace that they could, even after their sin, do something as significant as that. It says that she conceived, she bore Cain, and then she bore his brother Abel. And you have to go back to what happened when she sinned against God. What's the punishment? God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. So when she bore Cain, when she bore Abel, there was pain associated with that. And there's always pain associated with that, right? It's the way it works. It's, it's never stopped. She's felt that pain. Your wife, my wife, Mitchell's wife, it, it's been reoccurring over the centuries. But what's interesting is that these two words are the same. The one used in chapter 4 is conceived, it's hurrah, and it means to basically just to conceive, become pregnant, but it also means to contrive, which is an interesting word because it, it means to bring about by deception, bring about by um, your own effort, which again supports the idea that she thinks that I've kind of done this on my own, that Yes, I got pregnant with the help of my husband, but I'm the one that bore this life. I'm the one that gave forth this life. So again, it's, a, it's just an idea of where her mind is going. And then the, the punishment that God put on her, it's the same word, just a different variation. It's hurry on, and it means conception and pregnancy. So God says, yes, you will bear children. You will be fruitful. I'm going to allow you to do that. I'm going to provide for you to do that but it's going to be painful, but it's also going to be fruitful. I know after, you know, we have six kids, and after the birth of every one of my kids, 
If I had asked my wife at the moment, right after that baby came out, do you want another one? She'd have gone, no, I'm done. We're toast. I'm not doing this anymore. But give it months, give it, you know, and then suddenly I think I might want to have another one. And obviously she wanted to do that six times. There's painfulness and fruitfulness. There's joy, but there's also suffering. See, that's going to be the picture we see as we move through these chapters is that God is going to bless. God does show his grace. God allows everyone on this planet to enjoy the beauty of nature, to take the next breath, to enjoy having children, but it's going to come with suffering. It's going to come with pain, and we're going to especially see that in what happens next in the life of Adam and Eve. So I've put this, this timeline in your notes, and I did this for myself just to help me kind of get my head around all that's going on in these chapters. And really, all it's designed to do is to show you that as we move from creation all the way to the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, the first, the first few verses, what we're seeing is God unfolding His plan for mankind. Now, again, if the original audience is the Israelites, those people who are waiting to go into the promised land, this book was intended for them, and he's trying to explain to them where they come, came from, who they are, why they are where they are, and what he intends to do for them. Uh, and so he's doing it by way of this primordial history. How did I create the world? How did, I, how did sin come into the world? What's my plan for sin? And so it's this kind of story of the timeline of God's plan for the people of Israel. That's what this is all about. So we're going to move from creation, we're going to see Adam, we're going to see his son Seth, and then it's going to move all the way down to Noah, the flood is going to come. And and you see at that top, that little triangle says that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. So we see this trajectory where it's going to get worse and worse and worse as we move through these chapters. And the result of it is God finally says, I've had enough. And he brings the flood and he destroys the majority of mankind. And then we know, if you know the story, even after the flood, things don't go well. Immediately after the flood, things take off on another trajectory away from God. And so that's where we are in the timeline. So we're going to move through this rather quickly and just do a summary, kind of a 36,000-foot view of these chapters. So what happens in chapter 4? Cain and Abel are born, and then Cain kills his brother. Now, this is going to frustrate some of you because you've, you've heard these stories in Sunday school and you're going to go, Ken, you're not really telling the story right. You're not telling all the details. Again, I'm just trying to do an overview. They have these two sons, Cain and Abel. We don't know the difference in age between the two, but at some point when they become adults, Cain kills his brother. He murders him. It's the first murder. And then as a result of that, God punishes him He doesn't kill him, which is amazing to me. First murder, you would think it's going to be the first execution. No, that's not what happens. God basically allows him to live, and from him come a lot of people. And part of what we're going to see is that God is now filling the earth, but it's going to be filled with all kinds of people. God spares his life, but he does curse him for what he's done, for having killed his brother. And then he leaves God's presence. You see in chapter 4 and as we move further along that everybody's moving away from God. It's, it's this slow, steady movement. That's why, to me, the, the, using the term fall is less accurate than just a steady, slow 
determined moving away from God. That's what's going on here. And then what does he do? God says, you're going to be a wanderer. Because of what you did, you're going to be a wanderer over the earth. You're going to be a nomad. You're, you're never going to settle down. What's the first thing this guy does? He settles down. He builds a city, and then he tries to build a legacy. So that's, that's important because you're going to start seeing phrases and terms and the names of people groups that don't mean a whole lot to us, but they meant a whole lot to the people of Israel. When they heard these stories, these names and places that keep popping up, they're going to go, man, I know where that is. I know what that produced. I know who these, those people are. They're the ones living across the Jordan River, and we're supposed to conquer them. And it's God explaining to them what's going on and how things got to where they are. So Cain kills his brother Abel. And then what we see in chapter 5 is a loss of identity. What do I mean by that? There's a huge shift between chapter 1 and chapter 2, especially chapter 2 with the creation of man, to what's going on here. Listen to what it says. And you may have never looked at it this way before. It says, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. We studied that several weeks ago. We were made in the image of God. Adam was, Eve was. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man, Adam. That's not only Noah's personal name, but it's the name of mankind. When they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness. Now, this is where it gets important. After his image, and he named him Seth. So Cain's already killed Abel. Abel's gone. She has another son. They name him Seth. And it says, and I think this is so important, the way it's written here, that it opens up with, when God created Adam, the first man, he created him in his likeness, in his image. But what happens later? Adam fathers a son in his own likeness after his image. See, something has happened here. Something has changed about mankind, and it's significant. And this is what I wrote in Devotionary. Man, made in the likeness of God, continued to make more of his kind. But there's a subtle yet significant change that takes place in verse 3 of chapter 5. Adam fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. Seth mirrored his father's image. He bore his father's likeness. Mankind's ability to bear God's image has been damaged. It doesn't mean we're not made in the image of God. I believe every person, every baby in the womb before it's even born is made in the image of God. Once they come out, they're made in the image of God, but we can no longer bear his image accurately. We're like dirty lenses, a dirty mirror. We don't reflect the full glory of God anymore. Why? Because of sin. What changes that? Jesus Christ, who is the express image of God. When he comes to live in our lives, we've been, we're restored to the ability to now reflect his image. But see, here what we're seeing is a huge change. We're damaged goods, so to speak. Seth is damaged goods, just like Adam was, just like Cain was. Why? Because all of the descendants of Adam from this point forward are going to reflect what happened in chapter 3. The sin of Adam and Eve is going to infect them, influence them for generations to come. And one of the things you're going to see is death starts to raise its ugly head as we move forward in these chapters, and it becomes a reoccurring theme. 
you're, you're going to see it over and over again. It says, Adam lived and then he died. And you're going to hear it eight different times in this chapter, chapter 5. Seth lived and he died. Enoch, not Enoch, he, he's, a, he's a different case, but Methuselah lived and then he died. Everybody is born and they die. Why? Because they've been kicked out of the garden. They can no longer partake of the tree of, the, of life. And so everybody is now experiencing death. Death has entered the scene. And, and I believe, even though I can't really support it from Scripture, I believe that something has changed in also the created world when it comes to animals. I think that the animals are now taking on the sin of man because we're going to see that he's going to, he's going to kill all the animals. Why is he killing the animals? Because they've grown wicked too. I think we're now seeing animals who were vegetarians when God made them who are now carnivorous. That something has changed in creation because of the entrance of sin into the world. Things are drastically different, but there's this incredibly bright ray of hope in the middle of this chapter, and it's verses 22 and 24. In this litany of descendants from Adam, there's this one guy, Enoch. It says, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. And here's the, the catch. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and this is where it should say, and then Enoch died, but it doesn't. Enoch walked with God, and he was not. Well, what the heck does that mean? Where did Enoch go? And we know from other passages that Enoch didn't die. He was taken by God. He was translated into God's presence without undergoing death. Don't know how God did that? But that's what happened. He didn't die. God took him. Now, why did he take him? Well, it's pretty clear that because he walked with God. He, he had a relationship with God, so he was spared the curse of death. Now, he's going to become an anomaly. Just go back and look through chapter 5. He's the only one who's described this way. Everybody else does what? They die. They, they go through physical death, except this guy. And he's the only one where it says he walked with God. He was unique. He stood out. He was one of a kind. And, and the, the, to walk with God is significant. And here's what it means. Walking with God is metaphorical, and it indicates that Enoch had a lifestyle characterized by his devotion to God. He was devoted to God. The sense of walk, halak in the Hebrew, in its verbal stem, indicates a communion or intimacy with God. So there are some people, some who are going to be walking with God, even though the world is moving where? Away from God. They're few in number. They're rare, but they do exist. They're like unicorns. They're there. And so they, they're coming along, but what we're going to see is we're going to reach the point when we get to the flood where they're so non-existent that there's only one guy left, one, one man left standing who walks with God. And everybody else is going to be killed. That's a pretty sad indictment, right? Enoch's rare. Well, guess what? Noah's going to be rare as, as well. But he does establish a legacy, a godly legacy. In the midst of all the sin, what's going to come out, and the reason Enoch is pointed out is because God is working his plan. What I want you guys to see, and I think it's what Moses wanted the Israelites to see, is that God has a plan. 
one of the reasons they needed to know it is for them to go into the promised land and fight against nations that were more powerful than them and to trust God for his promises regarding the fruitfulness and the bounty and everything that he wanted to do for them is they had to know he had a plan. See, we sometimes forget that God has a plan and we wring our hands and we get worried and we wonder how, what's he going to do now? Did he know about Putin and Russia? Did he know about uh, the hurricane? Is he, you know, is he, is God as surprised as we are? No, God has a plan and he has a plan here because from Enoch will come Noah. See, there's a connection. There's a reason he's going through these genealogies. This man who walked with God and was no more, God took him, is going to be the great-grandfather of Noah, a godly legacy. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. He's the father of Methuselah. Methuselah had lived 187 years. He fathered Lamech. And then it tells us when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. See, God is moving along, and he's, he's preparing for something. He knows what's happening. He knows the trajectory of man. He knows it's getting more and more sinful, and he already has a plan in place to redeem a remnant, a very small remnant, and then destroy the rest of humanity and begin again. Noah. And here's what it says about Noah. Lamech, the father of Noah, says this about his son when he's born. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now, I don't think Lamech knew what he was saying. I don't think he understood the meaning of those words, but he's basically, he's prophesying. I think under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is prophesying about his own son in infancy about what he's going to do. And it's interesting, his use of words, that he's going to, out of the ground that has been cursed, cursed by who? God. When did that happen? When Adam sinned. He cursed the ground. This one, Noah, is going to bring us some form of deliverance. He's going to lift the curse somehow. He's going to restore something. He's going to do something radically different. I don't think Lamech had a clue what he's talking about. He doesn't know what that means, but it's a picture that God has a plan because God had originally cursed the ground, right? He didn't curse Adam. He cursed the ground. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. In other words, Now, when you try to go out and be fruitful and to care for the land and to grow crops, you're going to get thorns and thistles, you're going to sweat, you're going to toil and labor, and you're going to do it until the day you die. But Lamech seems to know that his son's going to do something different. And we know from chapter 8, after the flood, what does God say? I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, that's an interesting statement because it sounds contradictory, right? I will never curse man again because his heart is wicked. What does that mean? It's God admitting that I know mankind's just going to continue to get worse. The flood doesn't fix the problem. It doesn't eliminate sin. It doesn't bring righteousness to rule on the planet. I know what's going to happen, but I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to destroy the earth in a flood again. That's what he says. And he gives the rainbow as a a sign for that. It doesn't say, I'm never going to destroy the earth again, right? I just won't do it that way. The next time, he's going to get even more creative. He will destroy the earth again, and he will judge mankind, but he's not going to do it in the way that he did in the flood. So what's the story going on here? What, What do we see? Man is wicked. 
and they're getting increasingly more wicked. And that's what chapter 6 is all about, is that increase in wickedness, that, that red triangle that was on that chart. Everybody is doing what's right in their own mind, and the world is becoming increasingly more corrupt. I have people all the time ask me, do you think it's going to get worse? Well, yeah. I mean, I don't see it getting any better. I don't think suddenly we're going to elect a person or, or put a certain party in place and the world's going to turn into a wonderful paradise. I, I, I don't think the Scriptures teach it. And I don't think reason even projects that. It's not going to get better, and we see it getting progressively worse in these chapters. It's going to get worse. Listen to what it says in chapter 6, verse 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, this is a really interesting passage, and I'm not going to dig into it this morning. Again, if you want to go into further detail, read the devotionary. But there's a lot of arguments about what's going on here. Who are the sons of God, and who are the daughters of men? Because we're going to see that, you know, they produce giants, and the Nephilim come from them. And and there's arguments that say that, well, the, the sons of God were angels, fallen angels, who intermarried with women, humans, and they produced this race of giants, the Nephilim. Uh, and there's been books written about this. Uh, I don't buy into that because first and foremost, we're told that angels don't procreate. Uh, they, they don't, if they can't make more of their own, they certainly can't have sex with women and produce a whole race of beings. I don't think that's the point here. I think what's going on is pretty simple. Here's my understanding of what these verses are talking about. God is producing these lines of people, right? These different groups of people. Cain lived and he produced offspring, descendants. The lines of Cain and the lines of Seth are expanding rapidly and they create create this perfect storm on earth. Two divergent branches of Adam's family tree would soon find themselves interacting with one another, right? They're all living on the same planet in close geographic proximity and what happens? The godly and the godless would inevitably end up crossing paths and even intermarrying with one another. So the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain are going to begin intermarrying. And then the sons of God and the daughters of men are intended as references to the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain. That's all it's talking about. Nowhere in here is it talking about angels or superhumans or giants. It's talking about Two different groups of people, the godly and the ungodly. Two branches of Adam's tree begin to merge through intermarriage, and the result was a further degradation of the spiritual seed of Seth. And don't we see that happening? You can have a, a you can produce godly offspring, right? You can have a godly daughter or a godly son, and they marry an unbeliever, and suddenly your branch starts taking on a different tone because the influence of that ungodly wife or husband, and your kids no longer go to church, or they never did go to church from the day they were born, and suddenly you see your branch starts to change. It goes off in two directions. That's what starts happening. It starts to get diluted and polluted by these two groups intermarrying, and the appearance of men like Enoch become increasingly rarer. You don't see them anymore. See, the godly are always under attack, and one of the things the Israelites needed to know is when you go into the promised land, don't intermarry with these people. That was God's command. Get rid of them. Wipe them out. Why? Because I know what you're going to do. You're going to marry them, and then you're going to take on their gods, and then you're going to leave me 
and then I'm going to have to punish you. Don't do it. But we see it happening right here. The degradation of the godly. So the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I don't know of any other verse in the Bible that's more depressing than this one, right? That this is the state of affairs. This is how bad it's gotten. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In other words, there's no good thoughts ever. And the Lord regretted that he had made man in the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Now, is God admitting a mistake? Was God wrong? In other words, all those times when he said, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good, is now he going, ah, I screwed up. I made a huge mistake. No, that's not what he's saying here. This is all part of the plan. It still grieves him, right? It still hurts him to see this happen because he knows it could have gone so much better, but he knew they were going to disobey. How do I know that? Because the scriptures say that he had the plan for his son to come as the savior of the world before he ever made the world. God knew this was going to happen. It was part of the plan. But it says that everything about humanity has gone south. Not only just humanity, but it says the earth was corrupt in God's sight. Sin has totally corrupted the earth. And the earth was filled with violence. That's why I think the animals were probably now carnivorous. And there was that going on in the world as well. God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. That's how bad it has gotten. And then it says, but. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. My dad, I remember when I was a kid, um, he he would come to the dinner table and he would talk about something that God taught him that day from the word. And I'll never forget this moment. There were four of us. I was the youngest of four. And my dad came to the dinner table and he said, I've been doing a word study in the Bible. And he did a lot of word studies. He would pick a word and then he would, he would get a concordance and he would look up every occasion that that word was used. So here's what my dad said to a table full of children. He said, I've, I've been doing a word study and I've, I've looked up all the butts in the Bible. And we all broke out in just snickering and laughter. And my dad What's so funny? What are you laughing about? Dad, you looked up all the butts in the Bible. And my dad never got it. He was like, I don't know what's so funny about that. There are 733 butts in the Bible, and we're laughing more. And and he had studied that word and saw that it's, it's a conjunctive. It connects one thought to another, and he learned some incredible lessons. We never got those lessons because we were still laughing about the butt. But that's what this is. This is one of those butts. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Think about that. What did it say? The earth was corrupt. Everyone's wicked. Their thoughts are wicked all the time. But this guy, Noah, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's pretty amazing, right? There's one guy. Remember, we had Enoch, walked with God and was no more. Now we come to Noah, and he's the only righteous man left. Think about that. Think about if you were the last man standing. You're the last righteous man on earth. That's what this guy is. He's he's righteous. He's a man of God. He's blameless in his generation, it says. That means there's nobody else like him. Even his sons and his daughters-in-law and his wife are not labeled this way. They're saved because of him. He's the last one. He walked with God, it tells us. Just like who? 
Enoch, his great-grandfather. But you got don't let this just go right past you that we're to the point now where there's one man left on earth worth saving. Now, you've heard people say, if I'd, have, if I'd have been the only sinner, God would have sent his son. That's a little arrogant, but what do we see here? God's going to save one man. Why? Because he has a plan. And from that one man will come one man, Jesus Christ, who will really save the world, who will really bring redemption. One man. He's an anomaly. He sticks out like a sore thumb. There's nobody else on the planet that's like him. He's not perfect, and that's going to become incredibly clear as we move forward. He's rare. Again, like a unicorn, it's like he almost doesn't exist. I can't believe this guy exists. He's the only guy. And what do we know about him? Well, if you look over in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews in that great hall of faith, chapter 11, he's listed there along with some other guys from these chapters. One is Abel. We didn't look in detail at Abel. Abel was killed, right? He was killed by his brother. Innocent, didn't deserve it, and he's killed. What does it say? By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. This guy, Abel, with as little as we know about him, we know this, he had a love for God. And the offering he offered to God came from a right heart, whereas Cain's didn't. We're not going to go into detail about about all of that, but we know that he's a man of faith. What do we know about Enoch? By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he, he was not found. He was no more. They looked around for him, and he's gone because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Abel pleased God by offering a proper sacrifice. Enoch pleased God, and Noah pleased God. How did Noah, Noah please God? Being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. He was obedient. He did what God called him to do. And that's what we see in chapter 6. What's it say? God says, Behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that's on the earth shall die. And I want you to make the connection back to Chapters 1 and 2. See, see what's going on here. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds. Every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Everything God made, right, that we studied in chapters 1 and chapter 2, now God is saying anything that creeps on the earth, anything that flies through the air, anything that's going to die as a result of this flood, this catastrophe, save two of every kind and put them on this boat. Ken, do you believe that happened? Yes, I do. Why? Because the Bible teaches it. But it's impossible. Well, most of what's in this book is impossible. So I believe this happened, that God did instruct him to build this ark. And he did do what God called him to do. And God makes a covenant with Noah. It's called the Noahic covenant. He makes a promise, a divine statement of promise to this guy that in spite of all that wickedness that we've just been talking about, everything is wicked. Even the thoughts of their hearts are wicked all the time. God's going to extend grace. Why? Why did he let Adam and Eve live? Why did he let Cain live? Why is he letting this one man live 
when everybody else on the planet is wicked. Why does he do this? His grace. Because he has a plan. And then he gives this man a lot of motivation, right? What's the motivation? I'm going to wipe out everything. And if you don't want to be part of that, you need to do what I'm calling you to do. I'm going to destroy all the flesh, everything that's on the earth. And so this guy, Noah, had to believe God and obey. What's the problem the Israelites have standing on the wrong side of the Jordan River? You got to go across, you got to believe, and you got to obey that I will give you this land and I will help you conquer those enemies. What do you need today? The same thing. To go live in this land where everything's going south, where you feel like you're surrounded. Believe me and step out in faith and do what I've called you to do. That's what the Israelites needed to hear. That's what we need to hear. And what Noah does in building the ark is an act of faith. It's purely an act of faith. He'd never seen a boat. He'd never seen an ark. He'd never seen rain. He'd never seen a flood. I don't even know there was a body of water anywhere close to him. And yet God gives him these detailed plans to build a boat big enough to hold all these animals. But he didn't earn his salvation through works. See, he's not saved because he built the ark. He saved because he believed God's word and did what God called him to do. His building of the ark is a demonstration of his faith, right? If he'd have said, I believe, I believe you're going to do it, but I don't want to build this ark, what would have happened? He'd have died. The ark, building the ark didn't save him. It was his belief. I believe and I'm going to obey. As crazy as it is, I'm going to bathe it, build this incredible ark. So what does he do? Hebrews 11, 7 goes on and says, by faith, Noah built a large boat. Think about that. Nobody had ever built a boat before. I don't know how many trees it took to do this thing. I don't know how he and his three sons accomplished this, but they did. He obeyed God who warned him about things that had never happened before. By his faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world. What does that mean? He did what God called him to do and they were doing what they wanted to do. And his actions every day were a living testimony that you better believe, you better trust God, or you're going to die. But he received the righteousness that comes by faith. Everything he did, he did as God commanded him. What's God want the Israelites to do? Do everything I'm telling you to do. Trust me, believe me, step out in faith. I will give you victory. I will help you. See, God had promised salvation and Noah believed him. Noah proved his belief through faithful adherence to God's commands, despite the formidable nature of the task, the countless questions that must have filled his head, the assaults of his neighbors who probably ridiculed him relentlessly. Noah did exactly what he was told to do. In doing so, he proved himself to be the right man for the task. He did what God commanded. What does God want the Israelites to do? Just do what I tell you to do. Trust me. What did he want Adam and Eve to do? Just do what I tell you to do, and I will bless you. Trust me. What does he want you and I to do? The same thing. At no point does he question God's wisdom, second-guess God's plan, express doubt in his own ability to pull off such a strange and incredibly difficult task. Noah did what he was told to do. That's the message of these stories, guys. It's pretty simple. We're to do what God calls us to do. Noah labored diligently against insurmountable odds. I cannot imagine what it was like to do the task he was given. He, he obeyed faithfully against all kinds of opposition. I'm sure he was tired. I'm sure he, he got to a point where he goes, I can't cut down another tree. I can't build any more on this. This is 
hopeless and helpless, but he trusted confidently in the promise of God that I will save you. And then we see in chapter 7 through 8, the promise gets fulfilled, right? He builds the ark. He gets in the ark. The flood comes. And it says that in the 600 year of his life, imagine that, 600 years old, and you finally get this thing done, and you get in that boat, and the great deep burst forth, the windows of heavens are open, and rain fell for 40 days and 40 nights. God floods the earth, and God destroys everything. Everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and the birds. He wipes it all out. Everybody dies. They're blotted from the earth. And there's another one of those buts in the Bible. But God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. And then once the flood subsides, he says, go out from the ark, you and your wife, your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm in the earth and be fruitful and multiply in the earth. The mandate still holds. God has wiped out everybody else and everything else, but that boat held the new beginning, the new hope, starting over. See, this is the grace of God. This is the love of God, the mercy of God. Yes, I understand that he wiped out tens of thousands of people. I I have no idea how many people were living on the planet on that time, but he spared a remnant, and then he blesses them. And he gives them the same mandate he gave to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. He says it again in chapter 9, verse 7. Be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly. Multiply in the earth, fill it. Do what I called you to do. Do my command. And then he reconfirms the covenant. He gives it to the sons of Noah. He extends his promise and he commits himself to his word. I confirm my covenant with you. I'm going to bless you. And I will never again do what I did to the people that I just put to death. I'll never do it again like this. Never again will floodwaters kill all the living creatures. Never again will I flood the earth in this way. He will judge again. He will bring judgment again, but it will be in a different way. And then there's an interesting thing that happens here, the curse of Canaan. There's an interesting story, and we're going to blow through it, but you see something happen that goes really, really dark. It's a new beginning. Noah, his three sons, their three wives, and Noah's wife, that's all we got. Everything starts anew, and Noah decides to settle down. He's supposed to multiply and fill the earth. They're supposed to spread out over the planet and populate it. But it says, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail, but I don't think the Scriptures say that that's what he was supposed to do, but he did. And you got to understand, if you're going to plant a vineyard, you got to plant it, you got to wait for it to grow, then you got to wait for it to produce fruit, and then you got to take that fruit, you got to process it, and you got to wait for it to ferment, and then you can make the wine. And then he drinks the wine, and he gets drunk, and he lays in his tent, and he uncovers himself. And, and it's interesting that that word naked is the same word for, and they were naked and not ashamed, right? He uncovers his nakedness. We don't know what that means. I think he was probably hot, and he took off any coverings, and his son walks in and discovers him. And then he goes outside and he tells his brothers. Now, there's, there are commenta- commentators who try to turn this into an act of homosexuality. Uh, they try to say that Ham had sex with Noah's wife and incest was committed. The text doesn't say that. All that happened is, I believe, he walks in, he sees the nakedness of his father, and he turns it into a joke. 
because literally in the ancient Hebrew, it says that Ham told with delight what he saw in his father's tent. It's like he goes out and he starts making fun of his dad, drunk and naked in the tent. He determined to mock his father and undermined his authority as a man of God. He shames his father, which is the worst thing you could do in that culture. And Noah is not happy when he sobers up and when he wakes up and realizes what his son has done. And here's what happens. He curses Ham by cursing Ham's son, Canaan. And this is, this is huge. Again, think about it from an Israelite perspective. They knew the name Canaan. How did they know the name Canaan? Because they're about to go into the land of Canaan, occupied by the descendants of Canaan. And here's where Noah curses Canaan, the son of Ham. He curses his own grandson and his descendants. I think he's doing this under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And we're going to see that Ham's offspring become the enemies of Israel. Now, why is that important? Because the Israelites, for the first time, are getting a history lesson in where did those people come from that we're supposed to dispossess? There are relatives. There are former family members. There are enemies. And that's where chapter 10 begins to point out all the nations. Ham fathers Cush. Cush fathers Nimrod. Nimrod builds Babylon, Nineveh. See, these words meant something to the Israelites. Babel becomes Babylon. Nineveh becomes the capital of Assyria, which are all going to play a role in the people of Israel's lives. The Philistines come from Ham, who are one of the, the people groups they're going to have to conquer, the Philistines. And so all of this is tying together all the loose ends so the Israelites understand this is all part of God's plan. And from Ham come all these people, all the ites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Termites, all the ites come from this one guy. And where do they all live? They all live in the land that they're supposed to go in and conquer. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, their nations. These nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So he's getting a lesson in the origin of all the nations. He's letting the Israelites know the identity of their enemies, who it is they're supposed to conquer, the Canaanites. Where do most of these people end up? Right here. Look at this map. The Ammonites, the Amorites, the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Moabites, the Edomites, they all end up in the land that Israel's supposed to conquer, and it's supposed to be their land. And I love this from Deuteronomy 32. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. It was God's plan for these people to land here so that when it was time for the people to go in, they would cast them out. These are the ungodly, and the people of God are to go into this land and repossess it as their own. So this leads us to the final chapter we're going to look at, chapter 11. This is where autonomy takes another ugly turn, self-rule, self-determination. And Moses gives this little-known fact. At one point, we all shared a common language. This is kind of going backwards before all these people groups spread out over the earth. They all had the same language, and they all decided to settle down in one spot and disobey God, not spread across the earth. 
What did they say? Let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What did God say? Be fruitful, multiply, spread over the face of the earth. We don't want to do that. We want to stay right here, and we want to make a name for ourselves. They reject God's will for their own. They go after fame. They refuse to do what God's called them to do and they're unfaithful, and God intervenes. And how does he do so? He disperses them from the face of the earth. Therefore, the name of the the place becomes Babel, which becomes Babylon, which will play a huge role as we move through this book. The Lord confused their language, and he dispersed them over the face of the earth. So what do we do with this? What has this got to do with me? What has it got to do with you? It's got everything. See, as you consider all these events we've just flown over and we've blown past, think about this. What jumps out at you? What what lessons can you learn from them? Everything that happened to Cain, to Abel, to Seth, to Noah, to the descendants of Noah. What lessons could the Israelites have taken away from these stories? And how might they have been convicted by them? See, they're standing there and they've been told to go into the land, but they're afraid to do it because they don't think their God's big enough. What have we just seen? Your God is big enough. And guess what? You want to obey your God because if you don't, bad things happen. He wants to bless you. Obey him. Be faithful. And how does the story of Babel relate to mankind's ongoing obsession with autonomy? We so want to be in control. We so want to be significant. And I want you to look at Psalm 2, 1 through 5 to kind of give you some insights into that. See, this is for us as much as it was for the Israelites. We are the people of God, and we've been given a mandate by God. Are we willing to do it? Are we willing to be faithful? Well, Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these men. And I pray that as they talk around the tables that you would, again, open their hearts, open their mouths, open their ears to hear from one another, but more importantly, hear from you. What do you want to tell us today? I know you want to tell us that you're faithful, you're gracious, you're mercy, you're loving, but you're also a God who expects obedience from his people. Because when we obey, you're able to bless us the way you want to bless us. And Father, you have great things you want to do with us in in this moment, on this planet, living in this place. And so Father, may we be like Enoch, like Noah. May we be men who walk with you, who are faithful to you, who are obedient to you, and trust you in spite of what we see happening around us. Lord, I love you, and I thank you for these men, and I pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.